0: Church. Two weeks ago, Calgary held its annual pride parade downtown. I know that because I was there. Now you might be asking yourself, what was the pastor doing at the pride parade downtown? Well, the parade route literally ran in front of my front door. Like it was directly on my street. There was absolutely no way I was going to avoid it. So after church two Sundays ago, I needed to take the dogs for a walk. So I leashed them up and we wandered around the festivities and experienced some of it for myself. Uh, Was I a little worried that somebody would snap a photo of Dan at the pride parade and then start asking questions or making assumptions? Yes, a little bit, but like, come on guys, what was I going to do? The dogs needed to go potty. Okay. Was I going to say, sorry, pups got to hold it all day because the gays own the city today. No, I can't do that. Right. We it's no big deal. So I took the dogs for a walk and I got to see it firsthand. And I saw what you would expect at an event like that. There were people that were celebrating their sexual and gender identities. They advocated for acceptance and inclusion. They had slogans everywhere, you know, written on signs and t-shirts and things like that. And Some of what was written I agreed with. Some of it I disagreed with. The theme of the day was love. Like love, the word love was absolutely everywhere, right? Um, uh, Love is love. That was a common one. Love yourself. Love for all. So love was like the buzzword of that particular day. But you also didn't have to look too far to see a slightly more confrontational message as well. I saw a lot of shirts with the word hate with a circle and slash through it. Uh, I saw a couple of signs that had a variation of this statement, end Bigotry, right? Uh, the the former mayor of our city was actually photographed wearing a shirt that said "Straight but not narrow," which is actually kind of clever. I can't even be mad at the guy. It's it's a it's a twisting of Jesus' words in Matthew seven. I don't even know if he realizes that. Okay, but what I'll say about all of this is that. In the middle of this festivity that was about uh, inclusion and tolerance and equality and all those different things, there was also a subtle but undeniable message that if you disagreed with any of the things that were going on there, then you were possibly a hateful, narrow-minded bigot. Now, a couple of weeks before and a couple of blocks away, there was another group of people that gathered on the steps of the Calgary City Hall. They were not having a parade, they were holding a protest, right? And they were protesting what they called the LGBTQ agenda in the Calgary school system. Like those at the parade, they had signs and slogans, some of which I agreed with, some of which I didn't agree with. By the way, I wasn't at this protest. I didn't leash the dogs up and walk down to City Hall. I read about it in the news afterwards. And uh, the, the buzzword that they were using for this particular event was protect Protection, right? They were really, really focused on what they said would be the protection of young people against unhealthy uh, or even dangerous ideologies. When I read about this particular protest um, online, you know, whether it was social media and things like that, there were some words that were tossed around. I saw the word groomer used quite a bit, saw the word abomination thrown around pretty casually. Um, There was a a lot of interesting things going on uh, around this particular protest. So, catch this. In the last Few weeks, our city has become a battleground for two groups on opposite sides of the issue of sexual and gender expression. And while they both claim to be fighting for a very noble cause, and they both claim to be acting in uh, protection of vulnerable people, it seems to me like both of them are going about it in a way that demonizes and dehumanizes people on the opposite side of the conversation. In a world of protests and parades, Christians must adopt a different posture. We cannot fight in the way that the world fights. We can't treat one another the way that people often treat one another. The world desperately needs Christians who will actually act like Christ. You know, this is what we're told about Jesus. In John chapter number one, verse 14, the, the apostle John is writing. He's writing like 40 years after the, the crucifixion. He's thinking back on all of his time with Jesus. And he says this, the word was made flesh. The word is Jesus. The word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. The one and only son of God. He was full of grace and truth. Now I want you to notice here, John says that Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. Jesus was not all truth, no grace. Jesus was not all grace and no truth. He was not 50% grace, 50% truth. He was not sometimes gracious, sometimes truthful, depending on the circumstances or his mood that day. No, John says, when I think back to Jesus And what I saw in him, I saw time and again that he was full of both grace and truth. He embodied truth and grace clearly and at all times. This is what our Savior is like. What prompted John to make that kind of statement, right? That's a pretty big declaration to say, oh, I was with this guy for years. And I promise you, he was always full of grace and truth. What would prompt him to make that sort of statement? Well, John was there for the myriad of times that Jesus dealt with people. And Jesus often dealt with people who were on the fringes of society, people who had been ostracized and marginalized by the religious culture around them, by the social networks and stuff of their community. And Jesus interacted with them. In such a way that John said, you know, the best way I can describe it is he was full of both grace and truth. We can see this throughout the Gospels. Like Jesus has all these interactions with people, right? And we see grace and truth on full display. Think about Jesus in his interaction with the tax collector named Zacchaeus in Luke chapter number nineteen. Now, a tax like nobody likes tax collectors. I'm with you, okay? CRA agent calls, you're like, oh no, you get real nervous, okay? But they hated tax collectors in the first century. And here's why. A tax collector in Jesus' day was a Jewish man who had decided to go to work for the Roman government. And he would go around to his fellow Jewish neighbors and businesses, and he would collect taxes, tributes to be sent back to Caesar. So first things first, Jewish people viewed tax collectors as traitors to their own people, because you're working for a foreign occupying power. You are employed by the bad guys. How dare you support them? Do you not love your people at all. So they hated him because they thought they were traitors. But also it was very well known. It's well established in history that Jewish tax collectors often took advantage of their position at the expense of the people that they worked among. So here's how this would work. Let's say I'm a tax collector and I go and I knock on Kyle's door and I say, Kyle, I'm here to collect your $12 in tribute to Caesar. Now what Kyle doesn't know, Because there's no H and R Block in the first century. There's no accountants. Okay. What Kyle doesn't know is that he only owes ten dollars in tribute to the Roman government. But since he doesn't know, and there's no way to verify what I'm saying, and if he chooses to argue with me, I can have him thrown into debtor's prison. He's going to say twelve bucks. Sure, here's twelve bucks. Now, at the same time, Caesar is only expecting me to give $10 from Kyle. So I got two bucks to slip into my own pocket. It was well known that the Jewish people or the Jewish tax collectors, sorry, they would be paid by the Roman government and they would charge more than they should from the people around them. So when Jesus sees the tax collector, Zacchaeus, uh, just outside the town of Jericho, his first interaction with him is not, Hey, you little guy, come here for a sec. Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. All right. I know you've been robbing the people of this city. How dare you? How dare you work for those pagans? How dare you rob the people of your own family and blood? Sir, you need to get right. Or you're going to get left. You need to turn or you're about to burn. (laughs) You know what Jesus actually says? The first words out of his mouth to Zacchaeus in Luke 19, he says, Zacchaeus, I must have dinner at your house tonight. Okay, catch this. This is a true story. In the first century, when the tax man showed up at your door and knocked, if he stepped over the threshold, your entire house instantly became unclean you would have to wash the house inside and you would have to get a Jewish priest to come over and bless it before y'all were allowed to sleep there again. So you can imagine when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus and he says, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to go have dinner at the tax collector's house. That was absolutely scandalous, but he gives him grace. And he says, yeah, you haven't been the best guy, but I want to draw near to you. He goes to Zacchaeus' house. They have dinner together. We don't know what Jesus said at the dinner. But what we do know is by the end of their time together, Zacchaeus publicly promises to pay back twice what he had stolen from his Jewish neighbors. So Jesus must have given him some truth at some point in that dinner. He must have confronted him in some way, shape, or form. He must have realized that the way he had been living was not in line with God's intention. Grace. And truth. I can do the same thing with the woman at the well. John chapter number four, there's this woman. She's been ostracized by her community. She's drawing water from a well in the middle of the day. It's like the wrong time of day to be doing this kind of work. Jesus shows up at the well by himself, he starts talking to her. Her first response is, why are you talking to me? I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew and you're a man. We don't interact. Your people don't even normally give me the dignity of conversation. Why are you even talking to me? Because Jesus was full of grace. By the end of their conversation, do you know that the woman at the well is the first person that Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah to? He doesn't tell Peter that he's the Messiah. He doesn't tell his mama that he's the son of God. He reveals it to this woman because he's full of grace to people that don't seem to merit grace. He also gave her some truth. He said, Oh girl, your married life has been a mess. Okay. Your sexual history is pretty checkered. We're just going to put it out there. I know it. You know it. Okay. Let's move on. There was truth. He told her, listen, you Samaritans think that you can worship God on your mountain. No, you can worship God anywhere. You're wrong in what you believe. Your theology is incorrect. He gave her truth. But he led with grace. Oh, I can do this with every single one of Jesus' interactions with people in the gospels. I can do this with the story of the prodigal son. Probably the best, the best example of this is Jesus and his time with the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter number eight. If you don't know that story, it's powerful. So there's a woman, she's having an adulterous affair and she gets caught in the act, the Bible says. The men of the community grab the woman. I don't know what they did to the man, okay? He might've been in the crowd. He's like, yeah, come on, girl. I don't know. They grab her. They drag her in this vulnerable and disheveled state in front of Jesus. And they say, Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned for committing adultery. We should grab rocks, smash her until she dies for this transgression. What do you say we should do? And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to say, are you going to uphold the law? or Are you going to pretend like sin doesn't matter, right? There's a goal. There's a reason that they're approaching it this way. Jesus confronts the men so that they actually drop their stones and walk away. Sad, dejected, you know. And then by the end of the story, it's just Jesus and this woman left. She's standing there and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to condemn you? She looks around and she says, no, there's no one here to condemn me. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Grace. Now go and sin no more truth. Jesus constantly displayed both grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. We see time and again that Jesus was able to maintain a position of truth while demonstrating a posture of grace, a position of truth while maintaining a posture of grace. And if we're his followers, we have to be able to do the same thing. In fact, this is one of the the big uh, mistakes that people in the the, um, LGBTQ conversation, this is one of the things that's misunderstood or a mistake that's made on both sides of this particular uh, subject and conversation. Okay. We'll have one side that will only uphold grace and they'll say, it's all about grace. Don't worry about truth. What is truth? Your truth, not my truth, whatever, right? Grace. And then on the other side, we'll have people who only care about truth. There's no grace in what they say at all. Can I tell you, both of those are equally unchristlike. It is equally unchristlike to uphold truth and have no care for grace. It is unchristlike to uphold grace and to give no thought or consideration to what God says is truth. Christians have to develop a different posture it's ironic. I don't know if you've noticed this. I do like, you know, um, I have been because the series was coming up, but also in the past, like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just around people a lot as a pastor. And well, I I read a lot. And anyway, one of the things that you'll often notice in this conversation is that people on both sides of the discussion will claim with absolute certainty that if Jesus were alive today, he would be on their side. Okay, so like there'll be a group and they'll say, of course, Jesus would accept and affirm. How dare you? He would not turn anybody away. Of course he would be on this side of the discussion. And then others would say, no, of course Jesus would stand up for the truth and what God said. and Of course he wouldn't accept or advocate for any of those things. It's ironic. Both people on opposite ends of the spectrum are claiming Jesus as their own because they see grace and they see truth. But Jesus was not one or the other. He was of course, full of both. There's often this attitude that's like, It's really too bad Jesus isn't here to kind of tell us which is right and which is wrong. But listen, Jesus spoke on these things when he was here. And his day was just as polarized as the day that we live in. In fact, it might've even been more divided in a lot of ways. In fact, there's this particular episode in which the religious leaders of Jesus day, they come to him, they try to trap him. And basically they set up a scenario and they tell him, okay, Jesus, we need you to weigh in. What they're trying to do is get him to take sides. They want him to take the side of grace or they want him to take the side of truth. Which one is he going to lean towards or which side of the spectrum is he going to step into? But hear me now, Rather than taking sides, Jesus does something different. Rather than taking sides, Jesus takes them back. He actually sidesteps the landmines and the ditches on either end of this argument and debate that's brought up in Matthew 19. And instead he points them back to a truth that both sides desperately need to realize. He reminds them of something that is really the most important thing that we need to have in our brains. Anytime the subject of sexuality or gender comes up. Let me show you Genesis 19, uh, Genesis, Matthew 19, sorry, Matthew 19. We're going to read verses three through eight. It'll be on the screen for you. Scripture says some Pharisees came and they tried to trap him with this question. Jesus, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? I don't have time to get into the context of all this. This was a big debate in Jesus' day. There was actually a contingent of Jews. It was the most common, the largest uh, grouping of of, uh, beliefs on the subject. They said that if your woman burned your dinner, that's reason enough to divorce her. Seriously, that's what many of the rabbis and writers of the day were saying, okay? So they're saying, Jesus, take a side here. Truth or grace? Grace. Jesus replied, verse four, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one since they are no longer two, but now one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So the, the listeners, the Pharisees, they're like, okay, so you're telling me the truth is God expects our marriages to be permanent. Like till death do us part. Well, if that's the case, why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. This is like another example where we see Jesus upholding both values here, grace and truth, this time from the Father's perspective. We've got the truth that, yeah, marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman for life. That's the truth, okay? Some of y'all are real worried about gays and lesbians being married, and you need to focus on your own. There are many of you that are fighting battles in the culture, and you've ignored the problems and sin in your own home. That's not good. But not only is Jesus upholding the truth, there's also this measure of grace. Because although God intends for our marriages to be permanent, the reality is we're all sinners. Like we we have a tendency to break our covenant promises. We don't always treat each other the way that we should. And so as a measure of his grace towards us, because of our brokenness, God has set aside certain circumstances in which it would be permitted in order to get divorced. There's truth and there's always grace that goes right along with it. Now, this isn't even, I don't even think the most important uh, takeaway from this particular passage. Uh, I actually think the thing that should resonate with us is that Jesus does something here. He sets a pattern that we should follow. And that is when we have questions about humanity, questions about human nature, what does it mean to be a person and to be alive and to live among all of these different people in society? When we have questions about humanity and understand questions about sexuality, questions about gender identity, questions about matrimony, those are all questions about human nature. When we have those sorts of questions, Jesus tells us to go back to the beginning, to go back to God's original desire and design for people. Why? What makes them so special and makes them the archetype that we're all supposed to be following after? That's because Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 are the only people on planet earth that have ever existed in relationship with one another without sin being in the, in the equation. This is the only time humanity has been alive that there has not been the curse of sin from Genesis 3. What happens is the the sinful nature that we all carry around, I carry it, you carry it, everybody does, okay? The sinful nature, it warps how we see things. It warps how we see ourselves. It warps how we see and interact with one another. And it even warps how we see God. So when these questions about like life and relationships and self, when they come up, Jesus says, go back and look at God's original intention. If we do Genesis chapter number one, verse 27, we read these very famous words. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now for many Christians, this becomes the knee jerk verse. Okay. It's like, see, says it right there, male and female end of conversation. Nothing else needs to be said. God said it, that settles it. I believe it. Okay. Yes, that's true. Okay. That is what the Bible says here. But can, can we just slow down a minute? Cause there's actually something that said before that, there's something that said first that leads into the second. And if you misunderstand the first statement that's made in this verse, actually the statement is so important. It's repeated. It's repeated again. It's stated twice. If you misunderstand this part, you will never understand the rest of what's said about humanity in Genesis one, Genesis two, and even into Genesis three, the scripture says, God created people in his own image. The most fundamental truth About humans, the thing, the first thing that we are told about people is that they are created in God's image. Adam and Eve in this passage are representative of all humanity. Every single person is created in God's image. Now there's a tendency in some of us to say like, yeah, yeah, we know that. We know that. No, no, no. Again, slow down, slow down, slow down. Let's not rush past this. This is pretty important. So important. It was repeated twice. Okay. There's a Latin phrase that summarizes this. Um, It's called Imago Dei. I sound very like educated when I say that. It's like Latin, you know, sounds like I'm a smart guy. Anyway, Imago Dei is a Latin phrase that means image of God. Okay. And according to Genesis 1 and 2, every person bears the Imago Dei. Every person carries around the image of God. What does it mean to be created in God's image? Well, I could preach a whole series on this subject and maybe I will at some point in the future. Let me give you a little snapshot uh, in the moment of what it means for you and I and everybody else to be created in God's image. So the first thing it means is that human beings have a, a unique or a special relationship with their creator. Okay. We are able to relate to God on a personal and relational level. I have a relationship with God that my French bulldog does not have. Are you with me? Like my French bulldog doesn't pray. He doesn't come to church and worship, lift his hands during the music and stuff. I have a special relationship that animals cannot have. Trees can't have. The planets do not have. Human beings have a unique relationship. And hear me now, every human on the planet has the exact same relationship with God based on the Imago Dei. Every one of them. It also means that every human on the planet has a special responsibility towards God's creation, towards the rest of creation. So um, I've told you guys that in this series, we're not only going to be talking about like gender identity and like this broad kind of cultural sense. We're going to be talking in a few weeks about uh, gender roles within a Christian home. Like what is a Christian marriage actually supposed to look like according to the New Testament? And and then we'll talk about uh, gender in the church even. But one of the things that we're going to see is that as you continue reading in Genesis one and two, you see that God gives the exact same command and um, responsibility to women as He does to men. And again. Adam and Eve are representative of all humans that will ever live. When God says, I want you to rule over creation, I want you to steward, care for the rest of creation. He is giving that responsibility to every single human. So anyone who bears the Imago Dei, which means... Any human that's ever been alive, people that are alive right now, every single one of the seven, eight, nine, I forget how many there are now, billion people all bear the image of God. Every person that has ever lived throughout history, all bear the image of God. Every person that's going to fly around in a hover car someday, they bear the image of God. Okay. Okay. All of us have this special relationship to God and a special responsibility to his creation. Another thing that the Imago Dei means is that every single one of those people carries infinite and inherent value based on their humanity alone. They have the exact same dignity as every other person on the planet. They deserve the same respect. They deserve the same human rights. There is nothing that should differentiate them in that sense because they are all created in the image of God. Now, you might be thinking again, we know all this. Everybody agrees. Why are you harping on this for so long? No, no, no. Even in 2023, the Imago day is a radical concept. See, because for all of our cultures talk about equality and inclusion, the reality is when you start to listen to, to the messages that are really coming and you, and you start to see the way that people actually behave, our, our, our behavior doesn't really line up with what we say we believe in the world right? The truth is we treat employed people as if they have more value than those receiving government help. We value young people more than old people. We value celebrities more than we do nobodies. Like think about the fact that we would actually use the phrase nobody to describe someone. We're like, oh, he's a nobody. Don't worry about him. (laughs) Nobody is a nobody in God's eyes. We value athletes more than the disabled. We value thin people more than overweight people. Here's one that hits close to home. We value tall people more than short people. We value light skin more than dark skin. Modern people over ancient people. On and on the list goes. But Jesus and Genesis remind us that we all have equal value because we all equally bear God's image. Now, of course, there are many people in the world today whose lives look nothing like God's original intention. I'm one of them. My life looks nothing like God's ideal version of me. I have the same sin, sin nature. My views have been warped in the same way that everybody else's have as well. But please hear what I'm about to say. No matter how much the image of God might be defaced in someone, it can never be erased in someone. Please hear me on this. There is nothing that a person can do that would cause them to no longer bear God's image. There is nothing that can be done to someone so that they no longer bear God's image. There is no gender that they can click on Facebook that would be like, oop, lost it. There's no clothing they could put on that suddenly means they no longer bear the image of God. Every single human on planet earth only by the nature of their existence is a full and equal image bearer of their creator. So I want to be really explicit for a moment to the girl that's here and you're wearing a chest binder. I want you to know that you fully and completely bear the image of your creator And I respect your dignity as a human being. To the guy that experiences same-sex attraction, I want you to know that you are fully and completely created in the image of God. And we respect and honor your dignity as a human being. To the person that has an intersex condition, I want you to know there's nothing less about you, your existence, your body, or your nature you bear the image of the one who created you to my friends that are on the autism spectrum you're beloved creation of god there's nothing subhuman there's nothing wrong with you you have full dignity as a person in our world to infertile people like me we're people we don't have to go through life thinking that we're broken and there's something wrong with us. And, you know, we're, we're less than some way because I can't have kids or something like, you know what I'm saying? Like, no image bearers, full worth and value and dignity to the differently abled. Like you're no worse because you're in a chair than somebody that plays basketball. Like God sees you and he loves you exactly the same as he does them to the homeless people that we serve at the drop-in center on Tuesdays, your lack of housing doesn't mean that you have a lack of dignity or value as a human being. To those of you who battle depression or mental illness, I want to remind you that you are a special, unique, and beloved creation of God. And your illness and your battles do not define you. The image of God in you is what defines you. See, this is the mistake that often gets made in this discussion and debate. And frankly, it's made most often by those of us who are on the more conservative or traditional side of the conversation. And I'll just be direct. I'll tell you guys over the next two weeks, I'm going to lay out what I believe is a case for a traditional gender and sexual ethic. I'm going to show you what I think the scripture says, and I'm going to do it in a way that I believe is kind and graceful and truthful. And like, if by the end of it, you're like, yeah, you didn't convince me. Okay, cool. Like what you believe and how you live from this point is really between you and God. I'm never going to say, oh, you disagree with me on this? Get out. No, everybody is welcome here. I had a woman who came up to me after the service um, and she said, uh, this is my second or third time here. I forget what she said. Um, She said, I have been away from church almost my entire adult life because I am a lesbian and I've been in gay relationships and I feel like a hypocrite and I don't really think that I would belong here and I was really afraid that when I walked in, you guys were going to immediately know. And you were going to put me out of the church. And she said, I've just been shocked at how kind and gracious everybody's been towards me, even though I think I'm a hypocrite. And I said, Hey, see that guy over there? And I pointed out Ferdy. And, uh, I was like, he's a hypocrite. You see that girl over there? She's a hypocrite. You know, this guy you're talking to, he's a hypocrite on some level. We're all hypocrites. Yeah. We get so hung up on this sort of stuff and we feel like, oh, people can't belong. They, they can't be a part of this. But the, the, the mistake that we often make for those of us that are on the more traditional side of things, okay, is that when the word transgender comes up, our brain immediately starts to associate that with ide- uh, ideology, agendas, propaganda, right? But I want you to consider what God might think of when the word transgender comes up. When that subject pops up, he hears it from heaven or it comes to his mind. Do you think that God is worried about bylaws and curriculum? You know what God is worried about? First and foremost, he's thinking about people. First and foremost, he is thinking about people who experience some sort of dysphoria between their, their sense of self and their physical body. And I believe his heart hurts for the pain that they experience. And I believe that our heart should hurt on some level for people who are clearly experiencing some sort of difficulty in their life. When we start to look at these situations, okay, when we start to look at it as an argument to be won instead of people to be loved, we are moving away from the heart of God. For as long as you look at, this is a battle. It's a battle for the soul of our country. It's a battle. As long as we use battle language, we are referring or relying on the weapons and perspectives of the world. So instead, what we've got to do is we can maintain a position of truth and we can also offer a posture of grace to the world around us. We have to do that. So I told you, I'm going to, I'm going to speak to kind of the next couple of weeks. Like maybe, uh, you come from a more liberal perspective on this. Perhaps you have an LGBTQ loved one. Perhaps you experience some kind of inner disconnect in your sense of self. I'm going to kind of talk to you about what I believe the scriptures say and why the scriptures believe that aligning your sex and gender is a healthy thing. It's the healthiest thing we could do. We're going to talk about all of that, but that's over the next couple of weeks today. Can I just, can we, can we keep this in-house? Can I, can I talk to those of you who are Christians and those of you who are like me more on the conservative or traditional side of this conversation? Can we, just, can we just be honest for a moment? We've got some work to do. The church at large has some work to do. Many Christians are doing great at this, but most of us, we need some work. We need some help. Okay. And I think what we need to do is we need to adopt the posture of Jesus that when people look at us, they say, wow, that person is full of grace. Yeah, they're truthful, but they are full of grace. So if we want to do that, if we want to have that posture of Jesus, I think it's going to require us to do three things. Okay. We're going to have to examine how we feel, how we speak and how we interact with members of the trans community. We're going to have to change how we feel how we speak and how we interact with members of the LGBTQ community. So let me start by asking this question. What feelings first and foremost come to mind when you see a transgender person? When these photos pop up here on the screen, these are all people online who have publicly identified as trans. When you see their photos or when you're out and about at the grocery store and you see a person with a beard wearing a dress, how do you feel? What are the first emotions and thoughts that creep up inside of you? Now, we're just going to be real for a minute. Okay. I mean, I just admitted that I'm infertile. Okay. Like we could be real for a sec for too many Christians. The first feeling they have is disgust. It's anger. It's repulsion. If you have a, a family member, maybe it's your son. And now they're presenting and identifying as a daughter or it's a, it's a beloved, you know, childhood friend. And now they're asking you to call them a different name. And you're like, well, I don't even, you may feel sadness. You might feel confusion. There are all of these negative emotions that tend to creep up first. And what I would encourage you to do is to ask God to open your eyes so that you would see them as he does first and foremost, as people to be loved. When I was a uh, teenager, my youth pastor preached a sermon, I was like 17 years old, and he preached a sermon on a Wednesday night, and he challenged all the youth to pray, God, let me see people the way that you see them. I actually believe this prayer is actually why I'm a pastor today. I really think it changed my life. But anyway, um, I was like, oh yeah, I definitely want to see people how God sees them. So I prayed it. I prayed that prayer very sincerely for like two weeks, everywhere I went. I'm like walking down the halls of school. I'm like... (laughs) He's a beloved creation of God. Oh my goodness. You know, just like you start to get a sense of God's love and his compassion and his heart for wayward people like me. When you see transgender people, your first inclination is, Hey, that's a person that God created that Jesus died for. And there's an opportunity for me to have some level of relationship with them should be. How do you feel about the fact that one survey of nearly 7,000 trans adults, it found that 57% of those adults have family members that no longer have contact with them since they transitioned. 57% were cut off by family. 50% of students in the trans community have experienced overt harassment at school. 65% 65% of the trans community at large has suffered physical and sexual violence. And 69% of the trans community has been homeless at some time in their life. How does that make you feel? Because like, honestly, online, it seems like there are a fair number of people who are like, no, that's on them. That is not the way God feels about it. God says they're image bearers and nobody should experience violence. Nobody should experience that level of hatred. Nobody should be rejected like that by their family. Nobody should have to endure that kind of existence. That is not God's desire. It is not God's design and it shouldn't be our approach either. Philippians four, five, I think is a very instructive verse. Philippians four, five as we think through like, what are the emotions? What are the feelings that we have? How do we speak? How do we interact? I think Philippians four, five is very helpful. It says this, let your kindness be evident to all people. I want you to notice it doesn't say, let your kindness be evident to the straight folk. Doesn't say, be sure to show kindness to those that are gender conforming. Doesn't say, show your kindness to other Christians, but not the rest of the world. It says, let your kindness be on display for every single person. Also, notice that it says it's Kindness that we should offer. I had a guy that pulled me aside after the first service. Like I'm having a lot of interesting conversations, okay? <laughs> guy pulled me aside after the first service. And uh, he, very nice guy. He was sincere in his question, okay? Sincere. And he said, um, the question that I have for you, I agree, I agree. Like I agree with everything you said, but he said, uh, how can I be really loving towards somebody if I don't give them the truth, right? Like true love rejoices in the truth. That's what first Corinthians 13 says. So I have to give them the truth. If I really want to give them love, the irony of course, is that people on the opposite side of the conversation will say, if you don't affirm everything about me, then you don't actually love me. Love has become a really loaded word these days. And although love I think is the most important Christian word, maybe for just a bit in this arena, we should put love on the back burner. I know that sounds ridiculous, but stay with me for just a moment, because again, we can define love in so many different ways, often in completely contradictory ways. So what if we just took Philippians four, five at heart, and we said this, Christians, we're just going to be kind to people that are different. It's real hard to argue about kindness. You know what I mean? Like kindness is pretty apparent. Everybody understands what kindness is. So maybe not maybe definitely as Christians, we should be kind To members of the trans community, the gay community, the divorced community, the Muslim community, the atheist community. Are you with me? Let's let our kindness be the first and predominant emotion that comes to mind. Secondly, I'll ask you, in what ways do you speak, whether publicly or privately, about members of the trans community? Some of y'all are real tough when you hide behind your anonymous avatar online. Real tough. You say some dirty things, man. How do you speak publicly and privately? How do you speak in the break room about the trans coworker that you have? What are the things that you're saying? You need to be honest and you need to examine that. Let me remind you what James chapter one, verse nine says. James one, nine says this with our mouths, we praise our God and father. And with our mouths, we curse people who have been made in the image of God. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. So James says, He goes on in that chapter to say, if you curse someone who was created in God's image, you're actually cursing God himself. That is not a position you want to be in. So I'm going to challenge and encourage you, if you're a person that tends to use super inflammatory language on this subject, and and for just a moment, I'll expand this like to both sides, right? So like if if you're on this side and you're just like, they're bigots and they're hateful and uh, could we just dial that back a little bit? And if you're on this side and you're like, they're groomers and they're this and they're abominations, like, no, people are not abominations, right? Like people are image bearers. We need to speak in ways that reflect the love of Jesus. Like, could you imagine? Jesus coming across a trans person and saying, freak, I I can't. And if Jesus wouldn't, then I shouldn't. How do you think? How do you feel? How do you speak? And then lastly, how do you interact with members of the LGBTQ community? Are you full of grace and truth? You can be, it's a work of the spirit for sure, but you can be, could you have dinner with a trans person, not be weird about it? I hope so. For goodness sake, if Jesus can go have dinner with Zacchaeus, we could have dinner with somebody who is sorting out their gender. What if your, your daughter brought home a trans friend from school? Would you like pull her aside and say, look, they can stay today, but don't bring her back, okay? They're not welcome in this house. I, I don't believe that's a Christ-like posture. You can disagree. You can believe that God created them to experience a different sense of self, but that doesn't mean we have to treat one another badly, unkindly, or lack hospitality to each other. This one, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more at length about in a, uh, in a couple of weeks. So I'm not going to harp on this too terribly much, but I'll just say this. Okay. Um, that stat, man, that like, uh, what was the number? Sorry. Uh, 57% have family members that have cut them off. Like that breaks my heart. Like that breaks my heart. What if God cut us off when we did something he disagreed with? Boy, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, I know that if you have an LGBTQ son or nephew or whatever, um, you, you have ma- you may have made a decision to break the relationship, to put distance or whatever, because you are trying to be faithful to what you believe God called you to. You're trying to stand up for truth. And I get that. I understand that. Um, but can I just lovingly tell you, you can maintain a position of truth and and a posture of grace at the same time. Those two things are possible. We can do that. And so my personal belief is like, if you're a parent and you have an LGBTQ kid that comes out, you shouldn't put them out of your home over that. You shouldn't write them off. You shouldn't cut them out. I understand every situation is complex and the wounds and the hurt, all of those things are deep. But the example that we see from Christ in our father is kindness. It's welcoming. It's like the the, the father seeing his prodigal son from afar. And the moment he sees him returning, run straight towards him. That's the heart of God. We want to love people. If we ever have a chance to convince people of anything at all. And so we'll talk more about that in the future, but I think as Christians, we've got to do better. And it's going to start with how we feel, how we think and speak, and then uh, how we interact with members of the LGBTQ community. God, I just pray that you'd bless your word. Um, Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for your grace. Both of those are in abundant measure in all of our lives. And so God help us to be a reflection of what we've received to give what's been given to us. I'm praying God for Christians, especially in the room today, that you would open our eyes, show us people the way that you see people Take away our heart of stone. Give us a heart of flesh. God, help us to be compassionate and kind towards the people around us, seeing them as your image bearers and people that you died to have a relationship with. Oh God, would you help us to be better, to do better? And would you help our society to move in a healthier direction in every way that you might see fit? Lord, we offer ourselves to you today and this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Each week, I'm going to leave you with a couple of resources to read, okay? Um, We'll put them quickly on the screen. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about them, but um, each week, there are going to be resources that I've actually read myself. So it's not like, you know, I just read the Amazon reviews. I'm like, oh, this seems like it'd be good for them. No, I've read these. I've studied them. They've been helpful to me in my pastoral ministry. I think they might be helpful to you. Uh, And each week, the resources I'm going to give you are going to be specific to that particular message subject. So today, I've got two resources. You might want to snap a photo of this. You can find it online. on Amazon, or you can go to YouTube and watch like interviews with the authors and things like that. People to be Loved by Dr. Preston Sprinkle and Guiding Families of LGBTQ Loved Ones by Dr. Bill Henson. I think those will be really helpful to you. And if for some reason you want a a list of these resources later, just uh, hit the church office up and we'll make sure that you get them. All right. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you next Sunday.